pastor once told a story about a good friend of his. His friend one night ate a whole plate of dog food. As a matter of fact, he went back for seconds and enjoyed himself. Now, this was not a fraternity admissions. It was not a, a initiation. It was not out of necessity. No, instead, it was actually a very elegant party at a doctor's house. The dog food was served on crackers with a wedge of imported cheese, with a little bit of bacon chips, some olives, and a sliver of pimento on top, served on silver platters by gentlemen in tuxedos, and his friend gobbled it down. Turns out the hostess of this event was quite the character. You got to know her to know the story, and it goes like this. She had recently graduated from a gourmet chef institute, and she wanted to try out how good she was at decorating up food, no matter what it was. So she doctored up these miserable morsels, and if you know where dog food comes from, it's not the good portions of the animal or whatever it is you're eating, it's the leftovers, because as we all know, dogs will eat anything. And so will some humans. Kept coming back for more, and she had the sly grin on her face as she realized that these people were extolling her, saying how great she was, that she popped the top off of some dog food and put it on a silver platter. Now, there is no story about how they broke the news to the people, but they did break the news to them. There was no barking, there was no biting of legs, there was no anything of that nature, but I'm pretty sure there was at least one or two people that started gagging. See, when we look at something like this, we look at a story like this, and whether it's true or not, and, and whether this pastor doctored it himself, I don't know. But it illustrates one great truth about the church today. And that is, there is a lot of garbage out there that is being dressed up. It's being dressed up sometimes in showmanship. It's being dressed up in the fact that the auditorium is filled. And sometimes it's even dressed up in the fact that there are supernatural events that happen. And all of this is to get you to swallow down the dog food, to eat the thing that is actually not that good for you, and if you knew what it was, you would spit it out of your mouth. Today, Jesus wants us, as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, we have two more sermons this week and next week to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, this is the penultimate section this is the second to last. Jesus leaves us with an encouraging word next week. But this week, he says, beware, be on guard, watch out. Because false teachers, false prophets are on the way and may already be among you. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're starting in verse 15. And today's passage, as we're looking at it, the main point is that kingdom citizens, the people that belong in this kingdom that Jesus is describing, kingdom citizens, they know the king, and they live like a child of the king. They know the king, and they live like the child of a king. Just like we saw earlier, the road that we go down. Last week, we were talking about the wide road and the narrow road from verses 13 and 14. 
Just like it matters what road you go down, so too it matters who you listen to, what your teachers are teaching. Martin Luther saw that the two gates and the two prophets actually teach two different warnings. The gates and the wide road were teaching about overt, it was an overt enemy. It was saying, hey, go down this wide road, it's so much easier, come over here, instead of going down this little windy road. Luther then said, there's the prophets, and he says, one prophet is going to say this, and it's going to lead you away, but he's going to cover it in something so that you don't know that it's bad. The chocolate on the outside makes it go down better. And this is the covert enemy. This is the enemy that comes along and, and, and you don't realize that they're leading you astray until it is too late. So the point of this section, the whole point of what Jesus is getting at in today's passage is we must be on guard. We must be aware. We must make sure that our leaders are following through on what they're teaching that their fruit matches their root. Now, this is not to bring in us a critical spirit. We saw that earlier in the beginning of chapter 7, talking about whether we uh, assess people and judge people. We don't want to just be hypercritical. That's not what Jesus is going for, because that contradicts everything else he's taught so far. Instead, it's to have a loving concern and a spiritual vigilance as we look at those who are teaching. Which, by the way, is a little awkward for me because I'm standing up here and telling you to judge the teacher and I'm the one teaching. But please judge my teaching because if I'm a false teacher, I should be run out of here on a rail just as fast as somebody else who's better. So Jesus does not leave us to wonder. He doesn't start off and just say, hey, beware of the false teachers. Good luck with that. He instead says, here's how you know they are false teachers. And he actually starts out with this incredible picture that is very sobering. This is a very sobering section. He starts off like this, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are in inwardly ravenous wolves. So the very first thing he says is beware. He says, watch out. This is a big deal. Take care pay attention one translation says be on your guard this is an impaired this is a command it's saying you must do this and no this is not directed to a group of elders it's directed to disciples which if you're a follower of christ you automatically qualify and so this is to say be aware false teachers are coming they are clothed they are just dressed they are disguised as sheep but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. I love that picture. That's a great picture. It's this wolf that is starving, looking for the first opportunity to prey on the helpless sheep. Because we know sheep are very helpless. Instead of shepherds, they are the enemies of the sheep. They are the ones that devour the sheep. Spurgeon says, sheep's clothing is all fine, but we must look underneath the sheep's clothing to spy the wolves. And I think that's really what Jesus is getting after here, is that we may all look like sheep, but we must constantly be looking at the fruit and what is it that the sheep is doing, and especially when it comes to leaders. So what does this mean when he says, beware of false prophets? In the Old Testament, which would be the Bible that they would have read from at this point, because this has not been written down when Jesus is saying it, the word prophet meant two things. It meant one that foretells the 
what God's word, and then forth tells. Now that sounds really weird, it, but what it means is sometimes it's predicting the future and saying this is what's going to happen, but most of the time it is a much bigger chunk of what they do is saying, thus saith the Lord. So this is the person who stands up and says, this is what God wants you to know. And when he points forward to the future, it's usually to say, this is what's coming. You need to get ready for it. Not to help us decode what's coming and be like, well, I knew that was going to happen. That's not the point of the prophecy. The point of the prophecy is to get the person listening from point A to point B with a stronger faith. Not so they're prepared for what's coming. Because it's the faith that matters. It's the growth that we want to see. So a false prophet does the exact opposite. The false prophet does not prepare people for what's coming. Instead, it distracts them with something else. He teaches part of God's word, but not all of God's word. We see this coming on the heels of that wide and narrow. What this false prophet is doing is he's saying, hey, the wide path, actually, it's the narrow path. Just, we're gonna, it looks wide. Come on, get on it. And that's what these false prophets do. Their message is false because it's not going the right way. It's taking you to the wrong place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talking about what this would be like, says this, There is someone standing by my side. He looks just like a church member. In fact, he is a prophet and a preacher. He looks like a Christian, talks like a Christian, sometimes even acts like a Christian. But dark powers are mysteriously at work in this person. It was, in fact, the devil that sent him into our midst. He may not even be conscious of it, but the devil is encouraging him nonetheless. See, this idea of we could have false teachers right here in this body is something we need to be aware of. Now, we pray to the Lord that we don't have that. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, everybody's going to be on, on guard for false teachers, just not New Life Gladstone. Everybody else has to. No, he says, all of us need to do this. These false teachers, there's nothing obviously wrong with them. They're not going to say anything untrue, but they're just not going to say everything that is true. They're not going to cover all of Scripture. They're going to cover the highlights that fit with what they want to do. And many times these false teachers, what they do is they like to harp on a specific topic, avoiding all the other ones. Why are they avoiding all those other ones? Because those are the things that they're doing in their own lives. See, the false prophets, they have sin in their lives. They have things in their lives that they have held on to, and they're going after and the last thing they want to do is preach on that because they don't want anybody to hold them accountable to it. These false prophets are all about putting out an easy gospel for anyone to believe. They're going to say peace, peace when there is no peace. So what do we see from this just warning? Well, the first thing we see is that there are prophets and some of them will not be true prophets. It's the first thing we see. When he says, beware of false prophets, that means there's going to be real prophets, but there's also going to be fakers. The second thing we see in this first verse is that truth can be violated. Truth is not something that we just kind of choose your own adventure. Well, this is true for me, and that's true for you. No, it says there is a truth, and it can be violated, even from the pulpit, even by somebody with a seminary degree, even by somebody who has a ginormous church. It can be violated. And then the third one, and this is the one where I think really we need to be on guard, is that the gospel's enemies don't announce themselves. The gospel's enemies don't announce themselves. As a matter of fact, they hide themselves amongst the sheep. 
It would be really nice. You know, anybody who's ever played any video games, you're running around as a first-person shooter, and there's this nice little red box above the person that's the bad guy, and a nice little green box or circle above the person that's a good guy. So when you're walking around, you go, don't shoot them, shoot the ones with the red. It would be really nice in our churches if there was a nice false prophet sign flashing above each and every person. But there isn't that. As a matter of fact, sometimes the false prophets are the ones who look like the best version of us. So we must constantly be on guard. We must constantly be vigilant. And again, if we stopped with verse 15 and that's all we had, that's very depressing because we're kind of out of luck. But thankfully, Jesus goes into verse 16. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That word recognize means to discern. It means to differentiate the prophet's character and behavior will be to show whether they are a true prophet. This is not saying that it doesn't matter what they teach. They get up there and they teach something totally opposite the Bible. We would run them out. That would be what would be expected. But it's more when they get up and they're teaching, but yet their lives don't match. One of the things that makes this hard on us is that it's not immediately obvious when it comes to a false teacher. Notice it says, you will recognize them by their fruit. Not by their sprout, not by the bark on the outside, not by the color of their leaves, but by their fruit. And anybody who's worked with plants for any amount of time, fruit doesn't happen fast. And sometimes fruit doesn't happen at all for a very long time. So this is a test of the prophet, is a wait and see. Watch, be on guard, see where they're at. What does their life show? Because here's the truth. If this person is a bad tree, if this person is a false prophet, there is no power in their life that will kill sin. Because a false prophet is basing their lives on a false doctrine, so the flesh is still running rampant in their lives. And it only can cover itself up so long. I think this is how we've seen, and if you've followed the news at all in the last decade, you've seen pastors who all of a sudden something comes out about their life and they've been living a double life the entire time. And the reason for that is because the flesh will not stay covered up for long. And these false prophets, they can't help but give in to the flesh because they are not redeemed. Their root is in the wrong place. Many of them may give lip service to Jesus. They may even teach well. They may even sell a lot of books and have big churches. But if their root is not in the right place, they are not a follower of Christ. See, when we have this personal virtue, see, as, as pastors, there's, this, there's this, uh, th this charge on us that we have to first go to the place that we're trying to take everybody who's listening to us. But there are some that can fake that. They can get up and they can say, this is where you all need to go. The whole while they're going a different direction. What's interesting here is that in this passage, not only do they have success, but there also seems to be supernatural blessing on what they're doing. You're going to see it in a minute. It says, we cast out demons. We did miracles in your name. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. How does that work? Well, we'll get to that. 
But this idea of fruit of the good tree is obedience. It's always obedience. And obedience really is something that no one can see. It's the roots going down deep. Because if your pastor is praying, it should be evident in what you see in his life. If your teacher is spending time with the Lord and practicing those spiritual disciplines, it comes out in every aspect of their life. Not just when everybody's watching on Sunday mornings. Not just when someone's sitting in your office. But all the time. Fake discipleship is killing the church. It's killing pastors and teachers. Verse 17 and 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. See, what he's getting at here is he's saying good trees can't help but bear good fruit. It is natural. It is normal. If your roots go down and you are a good tree, the fruit just happens. The tree doesn't have to go, okay, come on, fruit. Ooh, fruit. It's not the way it works. That just happens. And the same thing goes for the teachers. If the teachers' roots are down where they're supposed to be, the fruit just happens. When we're healthy and thriving trees, we can't help but manifest love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy. This is what happens when we abide with the Lord. There's this communion. When our roots go down deep enough, the communion with the Lord just springs up and the fruit grows. Obedience is absolutely crucial, but it only happens when we are one with the Lord, when we are in a relationship with the Lord and we are tapping into his strength. Otherwise, it's fake. It's, it's, it's not real. See, we've got a problem. We've got a lot of Christmas tree Christians in the world. Christmas trees, we decorate them with Christmas symbols. We put fake fruit on them. We have lights on them. We cut them off for the roots, and then we stick them in something where they get fed once a week. See, Christmas trees are beautiful. They draw a lot of attention to themselves, more so than the natural trees, which we're blessed. We, live, we are so blessed. We live in a place where we can go and see trees all the time. Sometimes we get annoyed with how many trees we have in our, our yards. There's places in the United States where one tree in the block is an amazing thing. But we have these amazing trees, and they're decorated, and they're beautiful, but they're covering up something. And you guys will have to forgive me for this, but we've got 11 months till Christmas. But the, the Christmas decorations on the tree are covering up a corpse. The tree is dead. It's not alive. The only thing keeping it alive is the fact that somebody goes in every once in a while and puts water there, and if you've had a real tree, not the fake ones that get around this, but if you have a real tree, no matter how well you care for it, it's going to be dead soon. So dead that those little needles get all over the place and you'll be cleaning them up till May. That's what we have as Christians when we do not have our roots going down. If this is the only place you interact with your God every single week in this building during this hour, you are a Christmas tree Christian because you are just coming here to get a little bit of watering and hopefully you can survive the week. But the Bible says we want those roots to go down deep because the good tree has deep roots into the nutrients of God's word, into the nutrients of communion with the Spirit. And that grows the tree tall and strong. And when the storms of life come, that tree stays up. It's the tree with the shallow roots that falls. Interesting, when we're done with our Christmas trees, 
We take all the decorations off, and then we throw them out on the curb. Sometimes we burn them. We get rid of them. That's a very sobering thing to think of. If, if that is you, that's not what Christianity is about. It's not about dressing up the outside of a corpse. It's about tapping into the real life that is available through Christ. But I get it. There's a lot of pressure. When you come to a church, when you go to a life group, when you're in a Bible study, there is a ton of pressure to put up a wall and say, I am doing fine. I look fine. I match up fine. I haven't done these things which is true, that's what a Christian should look like. But we are all in process. And sometimes when our roots are going down, there's parts of us that rebel against that. And that's where we grow together. And we recognize that we're constantly going deeper in our walk with the Lord. We need to be rooted in the right place. So the test of whether a, a teacher is true is both doctrinal and ethical, meaning it's what is he teaching? If I get up here and I say, okay guys, we're going to pray to Buddha, you all should run me out. If I get up here and I preach, hey, we need to deny ourselves, we need to put others before us, but in every, everywhere else you see me, I'm doing the opposite. Run me out on the rail. Because ultimately, it's doctrine and ethics. It's faith and it's love. It's Christ alone and it's discipleship. It's roots that go down deep that grow up into a person that can't help but bear fruit. See, wolves don't submit. Wolves kill. And a shepherd, a pastor that is a wolf, kills the sheep. And he can't help but do it because that's what he is. They don't like to work on themselves. They don't want anything but to devour the sheep. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is echoing what Jesus' cousin John the Baptizer said in chapter 3. But without fruit, there is no hope. Because if you do not bear fruit, it means you have no root. It does not go down where it's supposed to. There will be many who will deceive for a time, but no one evades God's justice. And that's what Jesus brings out here. You may go to a church, and that leader is a wolf, and he does not reveal himself during his lifetime. He will stand before the Lord. And it says here, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. He will be destroyed at the judgment. But praise be to God, many times that happens before they get there so that even in God's mercy, this wolf has an opportunity to repent. That's why, yes, it's terrible when we see these pastors fall from grace, but that's God's mercy. Do you see that? Because if they had died as that pastor of that church, where are they going? They're going to hell. But they got caught. Praise the Lord. One of the best prayers my mom ever uttered. And she'll be listening to this in a little bit. So thanks, mom. Is she prayed, I want to catch my son doing things. And I hated it. I never could get away with anything. She knew me so well that when I did something and I was in the other room and I let out a certain laugh, she'd go, John, put the cookie back. And I'd go, how does she know? What? Because she had prayed and she had asked the Lord, let me catch my kid so that he has the opportunity to repent so he does not stay in his sins. So it's God's mercy. Isn't God amazing that these wolves that are devouring his people, not only has he blessed them, some of those ministries, 
But when those wolves get caught, they are still not judged yet. They're not dead yet. They have the ability, they have the opportunity to repent, and I pray that they do. Because wouldn't it be just awful to have spent 70 years of your life ministering and then to stand before the Lord and have the Lord go, I don't know who you are. You're not in the book of life. So God's mercy comes along and he says, I'm gonna give you another chance. Praise be to God that God is the God of second chances. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. When Jesus repeats himself, it's a big deal. So we need to be fruit inspectors of our leaders. It's important, so Jesus says it twice. So today in our world, there are plenty of people who are being served things that they would never eat, except for the fact it's been dressed up to look a certain way. Maybe it's a part of a movement. Maybe it's a part of a, a bigger, bigger church. Maybe it's a, because the person up there has sold books or they speak a certain way. But they're being fed that dog food. They're being fed garbage. Jesus says, don't put up with that. This is so important that in my great sermon, I'm going to put this forward to say, watch out. And that's where we are. So now, it's, it's really easy for us to stand back and go, huh, yeah, Pastor John, I'm going to be watching you. I'm going to be watching those elders, too, and those Sunday school teachers, I'm watching you. I'm not a wolf. Clearly, I'm not a wolf, but I'm going to make sure my pastor's not. And I appreciate that. Please hold us accountable. However, Jesus is not just dealing with leaders here. Jesus is actually dealing with something a little closer to home. He's dealing with each and every one of us as well. So remember when we talked about the plank and the speck at the beginning of chapter 7 and how we need to get the plank out of our own eye before we can inspect the speck, right? Jesus starts with that, and that's inherent here in this next section. So our big picture, remember what I said, it was kingdom citizens know the king and live like a child of the king. Now some of you, when you heard that, you said, okay, I know the king. How do you know you know the king? Well, I prayed a prayer. I made a commitment. I'm a member of the church. I have a Bible with my name on it. I went to Awana's. I went to Sunday school. I haven't missed a Sunday. We started lining up all these things that say, I know the king. And then you hear the second part, and I live like a child. We say, that's right, I tithe. That's right, I say amen at the right time. And we start listing all these things that we do. But this is not the point of what Jesus is dealing with here. It's not about what we do for him. That is incredibly important. But what's the most important thing here and what Jesus has been hammering this entire time in the Sermon on the Mount is do you know the king? Is he your king? Because it doesn't matter whether we know Jesus, it's whether Jesus knows us. And this next section, honestly, is the scariest part if not of the whole Bible, it's in the top three. Because when you read this next section, these next few verses, if you don't go, wait, is he talking about me? Then you're not paying attention. Because this is terrifying. It's heart-wrenching. It's painful because each and every one of us, if we're honest, there was a period in our life where we did all the outward stuff for Jesus, but it never got any deeper than my skin. It never got to my heart. And this is what Jesus wants. He wants heart change because only heart change leads to admission into the kingdom of heaven. Look at what verse 21 says. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Not all who claim relationship with Jesus actually have one. This is a move from the leaders to now the people in the pew. It's the people in the chairs. It's each and every one of us. There's a warning here. The danger is, is that we, we feel like we've joined a club. I'm a part of this club. This is the church club, right? I'm a part of it. I'm a member, so therefore I'm right with the, the leader. I'm right with the king. Jesus won't let this stand. Jesus doesn't say, you're my disciples, and that means you get a free pass. Everybody else has to do something else. Instead, kingdom citizens are different. They are citizens from the inside out, not the outside that never gets in. See, it's not magic words. It's not past experiences. It's not some commitment that I made that makes me right with the king. It's the daily relationship with the king. There's lots of people out there who have made commitments to the king, but then live lives that are diametrically opposed to it. How's that any different than these false teachers? I made a commitment, I show up on Sundays, but the rest of the week is all lived exactly like the rest of the world. So who am I really committed to? Think about it this way. I made the, I made the really good decision of marrying Katie Hedrick um, on September 27th, 2003. Got it, all right? And I made the decision of marrying her. It was a bad day for her, but it was a great day for me. I got an upgrade, she got a downgrade. But imagine if when we got married, we had the ceremony, we walked down, we signed all the thing, we sealed with a kiss, and then I said, all right, I'm moving to Texas. You stay here in Portland. You can start seeing some other fellas. I'll see some other ladies, and we'll just be, you know, separate, but we'll, we'll be married because we have this paper, we have this document, we have this ceremony, we have this experience. And then seven or eight years from now, would you say that we're really married? We've never even lived in the same state. We've got other lovers. Are we married? The answer is, well, technically, yeah, I guess. But in reality, are we married? No way. Not even close. What's my assurance of my marriage to my wife? It's the fact that I woke up next to her this morning. It's the fact that I'll go to bed next to her tonight. It's the fact that our lives are so intermeshed that sometimes we finish each other's sentences. She's the one I want to be around all the time. Even on her worst day, I'll take that over not having her. That's what marriage is. And that's what our relationship is with the Lord. The assurance we should have is not some past experience, but the right here, right now. If I was to ask you, are you a Christian? And you say yes. And I say, well, how do you know? And you say, because I do this, or I have done that. That's not assurance. Assurance is, I know Jesus Christ, and I've spent time with him today, and I'm going to spend time with him tomorrow, and I'm going to continue to pursue Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. As long as the Lord tarries, I'm going after him. It's the same thing with a marriage. You're pursuing that person for the rest of your life, and you're doing it together, enmeshed together. So right in this passage, is this you? What is your assurance that you know Jesus, that you're a believer? Do you have the false assurance that I did something a long time ago, that I had this ceremony, that I was baptized? Those things are absolutely crucial because you do have to start a relationship. But if that's all you have, there is no relationship. 
And praise be to God that you're here today because you, the Lord tarried, just like with those false prophets. He's tarried so that you can get right with him today. See, the only way to get through this is to examine ourselves honestly. Where are you honestly with the Lord right now? Examining yourself is hard because a lot of times we want to just blurt out, well, I did these things. I taught Sunday school. I did this. I did that. And we want to do that. And that's what we see right here. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? The frightening factor has just doubled. Because not only is it somebody might not be a follower of Christ, but Jesus puts that fourth word in there. And what is it? It's the word many. Not a few, not a couple, not some people from non-New Life Church somewhere else. Nobody says many. There are going to be lots and lots of followers of Christ that will come along and do amazing things but never know the king. And spoiler alert, the next verse, he says, away from me, I never knew you. It's not enough that we do things for the Lord. It's not enough. Look at, they, they were prophesying. They were casting out demons. They were doing mighty works. You're like, well, that's really weird. I don't even know anybody who's doing that right now. How about this? We had a big church for you, Lord. We had a big Sunday school for you. I wrote books for you. My sermons were downloaded. People came and said, I met Jesus here. That's not enough to make you right with the Lord. It's the temptation of doing things for the Lord to make me right with the Lord instead of having a relationship with the Lord. See, being Christ-centered is not enough because look at what it says. It says, they prophesied in Jesus' name. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They did mighty works in Jesus' name. It's not enough to do amazing things, even miracles for the Lord and not have a relationship with him. In fact, they were fooling themselves. See, God even blesses people that don't want anything to do with him. Isn't that amazing? If you're not getting that God is merciful and loving, we already saw that with these ravenous wolves who were given a second chance, but each and every one of us, and this is why it's so hard, because I can be doing a ton of things for the Lord, and he can bless it, and I can be outside the kingdom. He loves the kingdom, and he loves the fellow humans around us that sometimes, even in our sin, he blesses those instances And they tell the truth, which is what prophesying means. They cast out demons, which furthers the kingdom. And they worked miracles, and yet they did not know him. See, the problem we have is is we think that if God uses you, you must be on his side. You must be being blessed. And let me just tell you, the Bible is full of things that were not God's that blessed he used to bless people. Listen to some of these, these people and things that God uses to bless people and to further the kingdom. He uses snakes. He uses dirt. He uses fish, frogs, locusts, pagan kings. He uses adulterers. He uses trees, murderers, water, traitors, donkeys, mud, worms, corrupt politicians, pagan nations, child sacrificers, and prostitutes, all of which were used by God to further his kingdom. Is that the company we want to be in? Do we really want to say, hey, God blessed what I did, so therefore I must be a part of his kingdom? The Old Testament is 
full of it. I've been reading through the Old Testament as a part of my reading for this year, and I'm going through, and it's so many times. He uses the people that the Israelites are fighting against to further his kingdom. So just the fact that you have a ministry that's being blessed does not mean you belong to the king. Being used by God is not the same as belonging to the king. What matters is, do you know the king and does the king know you? And that is only possible through a relationship with him. It's not enough to just be Christ-centered. It's not enough to have a ministry that's going like gangbusters. Instead, we must have a relationship with the Lord. See, there's three fatal things that we have. The first is we think, as long as I get my doctrine right, as long as I believe the right thing, I'm okay. And we see this here. They say, Lord, Lord. They're calling Jesus the Lord. So they got good doctrine, but they don't have a relationship. The second thing is we think our emotions are what matter. I had an emotional experience, therefore I must be saved. I love Jesus, therefore I must be saved. You, you notice here it says that Lord, Lord, they say to me, that word actually is they cry out to me. There's emotion here. Having the right theology, having emotional relationship with God is not enough. And then third, what we've already talked about, just being active for the Lord, even if he blesses it, is not enough. Because they did these things, things that we will never do. See, they, they listened to this Sermon on the Mount, and instead of going off and cutting off the limbs of lust, they fanned the flames. They didn't stop their adulteries, they just hid them better. Their hatred towards their brother, yeah, they didn't do anything out, outwardly, but inwardly, oh yeah, they were killing them every day. Love for money, coveting of neighbors' things. All of these things were things that they said, I'm not going to deal with. I'm just going to let them stay, and I'll just cover it up. See, the problem is, is that until we let the Lord work on our hearts and take our roots deep, we will just be play-acting. We will just be faking. Yes, we need to think the right thoughts. And yes, we need to do the right things when the Lord calls us to obedience. And yes, we are to feel. the. We should have an emotional attachment to our Lord. But that's not what saves us. What saves us is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place and the relationship that that is fostering in me so my roots go deep down into him, not into these activities that I think make me right with God. Success does not equal blessing from the Lord. We are not a works-based religion, but we are a religion that works should spring up naturally. Because remember, the wolf can't help himself because his nature, his fleshly nature, is not redeemed. He's going to devour sheep. If we are in Christ, we have a new nature, and that nature can't help but love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness self-control, because that's the natural outpouring. It's the fruit of having root in the Lord. See, we don't want to be one of these people that own Jesus, but Jesus disowns, that honors Jesus, but Jesus dishonors, that works for him, but then he separates from him. We want to be right there in them. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This word lawlessness is the word Allah. It basically means like, like when we see the word atheist, it means anti-law. 
What Jesus is saying here is, there's nothing of my beatitudes that are found in any of these people. There is nothing pure of heart. There's no peacemaking. There's no hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Because the key is knowing God, knowing his son. It's not about doing work, which is important. We are to obey. It's not about knowing his truth, which is important. We are to know his truth. But what saves, what gets us into the kingdom is that relationship. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, what the Lord will say on the judgment day to these self-deceived people is that they had done all these things in their own power and energy. He never had anything to do with it. So the most important thing for all of us is not to be interested primarily in the results of our activities, but in a relationship with God. Because God wants our hearts. We may say that Jesus is Lord. We may declare things, but our actions always speak and tell us where we truly are. They had professed verbally, Lord, Lord, but yet the Lord never reached their heart. See, there's a difference between knowing something and living it out. I can believe I can fly. I mean, I I can fly really well. You should see me. I can soar. It's amazing. But then when it comes to everywhere I go, I use my car or I walk or I run. Why don't I fly? Well, because if I really believed that if it really was my core of who I am, I would do it every every opportunity that I had. And that's the same way it comes with us. If we're followers of Christ and we are in Christ, we can't help but be what he is making us to be. But unfortunately, though, many of us believe we're in when we're actually not. You know, the devil knows a lot about God, but it's not saving knowledge. We know a lot about God, but is it saving? Knowledge doesn't save. Actions don't save. Emotions don't save. What saves is a relationship with Christ. Think about that. Super religious people who don't know their king. We need to have that hunger. We need to have that in our lives. One last thought and then we'll wrap up. It's really, really easy for us to elevate being devoted to God instead of knowing God. We can be devoted to God's mission and we want to grow this church. We want to, we want to lead people to Christ. We want all of that. And many people hold that as what's most important. We can't be that. We have to be people that are devoted fully, 100% to God and God alone. Not to the mission. The mission is what comes from the devotion. But unfortunately, we are so easily tempted with making the mission what matters, not the relationship with Christ. But that's another sermon for a different day. So what do we see here? Well, we see two groups. We see the false teachers and the false followers. Both groups got the truth down. Maybe the false, to- false teachers don't teach on certain things, but they look good on the outside. But on the inside, they're rotten. Their roots don't go down. Neither group is doing what Jesus said. Neither group is living out the Beatitudes. They know the Beatitudes, but they don't live them out. The only way to live lives that bear good fruit is to have our roots in the right place. And it's with a relationship with our Lord and Savior. So ask yourself today, am I a false teacher? Am I a false follower? 
Why do I believe that I'm right with God? Is it because of the things I've done? Is it because of the club I've joined? Is it because of the ministries that I've expanded? Or is it my relationship with Jesus Christ? Because i got to tell you, as I was reading it this week, this hits me. Because I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a false follower. I don't want to be a false teacher. I want to be someone who has got my roots deep down in God. Because only what's done for Christ will last. It's the only thing that lasts. So why are you a Christian? Is it because you've done certain things? Or is it because you know the king and he knows you? The good news in all of this is whether you're a false teacher, that wolf in sheep's clothing, or you're a false follower, you're a goat in here pretending to be a sheep, it's not too late. Your Lord and Savior has tarried through today, through this moment, so that you can be right with the Lord. If your religion is about acting and things that you do, it's a false religion. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Let him grow new roots in you, maybe for the first time ever, so that you can go deep into your Lord and Savior. Remember, it's not what we do, but what he has done that saves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for the sun that right now is shining through these these windows and blinding people on one side of the room. Lord, that that light is a good metaphor for what it is to see you rightly. It is so bright and blinding, but Lord, we see things more clearly with the light. So Lord, I pray that the light would do its work on each of us today. Lord, whether we've been believers for 80 years or we're just trying this out today, Lord, each and every one of us have aspects of this that we need to repent of. So Lord, please help us to see you rightly. Help us to have roots that go down deeply. Help us to see through false prophets. And Lord, help us to not be false followers. Lord, grow our roots down deep and then grow the fruit. And Lord, I pray that your fruit would be on display in this church and change this community because the fruit can't help but grow. But first, Lord, we need those roots. So dig those roots down for us, Lord. In your name, amen.